Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. another episode. This is Holly and Amy and Kristen and we are joined by a special guest today and we're going to let her really share her story and and let you start to see why we wanted to have a conversation with her that all of you could be a part of. As we always say on this podcast, we want to have these conversations, but we are inviting you into the conversations too, to ask questions, to dig a little deeper, and to just think for yourselves, make up your own minds about things, and feel free to say what you think. Katie Hankey has a fascinating story. She lives in Oregon. I'm going to let her tell you guys more about who she is, but we are so thankful for this podcast and the way that it has connected us to people literally all around the globe and how so many of our guests now are people that we have been connected to or who have found us and are willing to share their stories and provide information with this goal in mind, that it helps you, the listener, to find things and learn things that you need to for yourselves because it's never been more important that we think for ourselves, we look up things for ourselves, we do some research for ourselves so that we can live in optimal health and freedom. So without further ado, Katie Hankey, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you for having me, ladies. Um, I guess a little bit about myself. I uh, live in Portland, Oregon. I'm a certified personal trainer and a nutrition and wellness coach. Uh, additionally, I'm a skills coach, mainly for youth in basketball and soccer. Um, I have a long background in those sports. Um, also, I recently founded the Alpha Females Northwest group on Facebook. We're a women's empowerment and wellness group. Uh, we get together and uh, you know share healthy foods, work on fitness things, uh, talk about our lives. Just a group for women to come together and, and feel like there's community. Um, um, which I think is especially important right now because it's been gone for two years. So, yeah. um, <laughs> yep. um, also I am the mother to four boys ages, uh, one to 15. <laughs> and, um, formerly I was a pretty much a medical disaster with a, a 1300 page medical record, uh, spanning 21 years, um, which includes multiple hospitalizations, several chronic and degenerative conditions. And um, I've recovered from multiple addictions and I've uh, got myself a criminal record now too. So um, well, I've, I've full, you know, full scope of experience now. Right. And that's um, what we saw in our inbox. Um, you know, you, you messaged us and you sent us this, you have, I guess, a transformation video that kind of 
shows your, your background of everything you've been through with like health and wellness from being the medical disaster to now leading an alpha females group with like health and wellness and recipes. And we are the three of us, if y'all know, if you've been listening to our podcast, you know how much we value and um, health and wellness and taking your own health into your own hands and doing the hard work to get healthy. And so of course, when we saw your video, we were like, we would love for you to share just your whole story. So that's kind of the background of how we found you, you found us, and um, we can't wait to hear about it. I mean, I'm interested in the criminal record too. Yeah. All <laughs> um, it's not as exciting as it sounds, um, if it sounds exciting at all, but I, I will definitely share about that. Um, well, Katie, will you take us back? Because you said it was a 21 year medical history. Right. That was pretty disastrous. So can you take us back to the beginning where the health decline started and why, and what was going on in your life at the time that really led to that, to two decades of a struggle? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I think it really all started when I was in school, when I was, um, I really started seeing differences in myself and my body when I was in high school. Um, growing up, my parents really emphasized athletics. So being in sports was super important. Being active was really important. And being part of a team and working hard was important. Um, however, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on health, healthy eating. Um, my, we ate pretty much the standard American diet, just really high processed, you know, ultra processed, high sugar, high carbohydrate, easy stuff. You know, my parents both worked. We were a busy family playing sports and they didn't they didn't know another way, you know, that's what they thought. That's how they were raised. That's how we ate. And it just, there was no questions, you know, it just, it was the way it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was fine. It seemed for a while. And then, um, I got into high school and I started having, uh, problems like with my back. I, I started having uh, a lot of like arthritic, arthritic pain in my back. I'd had to go to, um, physical therapy and I would get in ankle sprains I um, started gaining weight and I wasn't, I wasn't super overweight or anything, but I wasn't as fit as I could have been. And I was just carrying around extra body fat because of my diet and I was exercising a lot. So I, I really believe that if I hadn't had all that activity in my life, I would have been very unhealthy at that age. Well, um, and that so, weight is probably one of the reasons you were getting a lot of the injuries that extra yeah, weight. Definitely. <clears throat> definitely. And um, the coaches talked to me about that, which was hard to hear, but I, I tried to work harder on it and, and I made some improvements, but ultimately I didn't understand the food piece. And so that was what took me the longest to understand. Probably um, after high school, I, I got a scholarship to play soccer for Portland state university. Um, I played goalkeeper. And so I was really excited about that. Um, it was, it was far away, about hundred miles from my hometown. I didn't know anybody there. And it wasn't a real big campus where, where the, a lot of students stayed on campus. It's kind of a commuter college, but it was a division one team. And I was just like thrilled that I, that I had made it. And so um, that started off fine. And then, you know, in, in high school, I'd always been really, really, I guess you would call like a goody two shoe. Like I never went to a party. I never, I never took a drink. I never, I never did anything, you know, as far as those kinds of things go, I focused on academics and sports. And, uh, I didn't use any substances. At least I didn't think I did, you know, looking back on it now, I really used food as a substance. 
I used it constantly. I used it just for, for pleasure when I was, when I was upset, when I was happy, it was celebratory. It was whenever things were, were, were going bad, it was always there for me. And I never saw it as a, as a problem. You know, I even had a box in my room that was like my candy box and I filled it with just like chocolate bars and candy. And I always had to have it full or, or I felt like I wouldn't be able to handle that week. And I didn't understand and recognize that those were like addictive behaviors. Cause I was just a kid, you know, I was like 15. Didn't, it just seemed like I liked candy and, and there it was. And when I ate it, I felt better. And I didn't go beyond that, you know? Well, and that's the thing. Food addiction is a socially acceptable addiction, but it is yeah. an addiction that is as can be as detrimental as a drug addiction and out, you know, alcoholism. Definitely. It is, and that's the conversation we have to get back to in this country is, you know, what is it, who was it that said, let food be that medicine and that medicine, that food, right? That, that, that back, it was one of the philosophers or I, I can't remember, I, I want to say Hippocrates. One of the Kati's wise people that said, said uh, Socrates, maybe, I don't know, one of those said that. And it's, it's, it's kind of become the premise of integrative medicine now, right? But if you look at the United States right now, the obesity, we're the fattest we've ever been. And the um, and the decline in our overall health for the first time in what decades, if not a century, our our um, life expectancy is now declining, and and it yes. really looks that it points back to a lot of things. The pharmaceutical industry being one of them, but certainly our diets. Our diets are terrible, and it's but but what bothers me. I have seen some really judgmental, overweight people towards alcoholics and drug addicts. And it's hard for me sometimes to not want to turn and say, we're not going to talk about your addictions too. Cause we, we <laughs> all can do it. And you don't have to be overweight to, to have a food addiction, right? Like you could, you can have a food addiction and still not be overweight because of the way that you manage it. Let's say any of those eating disorders. Right. So, mm -hmm. so I love that you're pointing this out, Katie, because I think that we all have to get real and honest about our health. And I think so much of it starts with diet and the way we cope with stress and anxiety and those kinds of things. So as you're in college and you are playing division one sports and you're still pretty clueless that, because you've been good, you've not been using substances, you've not been, you know, going crazy and wild. So you think, you know, you're, there's no alarms going off yet of like, well, I do have this dependency. I'm coping with food that you're not right. There's not a lot of alarms going off. Um, you know, the coaches on the team started saying stuff to me like, you don't need that cookie or you should order the marinara and not the cream sauce. And, and I was, I felt terrible. Like I was crushed, right? Like, why was I being so picked on, you know, and, and I would compare myself to other people on the team and be like, I'm not even the heaviest one. Like, why are they picking at me? And, and um, it just, I, I never, at that moment, I never was able to look at myself and, and see that, that I had a problem, you know, it was always deflecting. It was somebody else. And, um, and being on campus all the time and not knowing anybody, um, I, I started going to parties and everyone on, on the team or most people on the team would go to parties and there'd be like drinking weekends, you know? And it was, it was at the time it was fun. Cause I'd never done that before. And there was a whole bunch of new people and it was this big social thing. And it just seemed like 
you know, consequences wasn't even a word I knew at that moment. Right. So it, it just seemed like it was just fun and everything was, was going okay at the moment, but it, it, it really declined quickly. It really, I really nosedove into that, that alcoholic lifestyle. You know, I started missing classes, um, not, not going to practices, not seeing, not seeing friends, having so being too hungover to do anything. And so it just got to the point where, where, you know, the coach had to talk to me and was like, you are, you know, you're train wrecking yourself out of this team, you know, and I wasn't being played anymore because I was never coming to practice. And then my, my parents were like, well, if you're not going to try, then we're not going to help pay for anything else for school. And so then I was like, well, I guess I'll just quit. Cause at this point I was already so, I felt so depressed and drinking was the only thing that seemed to bring me any relief. And, uh, and I didn't really, you know, I was only 18. I didn't have a lot of introspection. I don't care how, how legally grown up you are at 18. Um, you don't know anything. Yeah. Most people don't. <laughs> I didn't, I was one of the people that didn't know anything. Maybe some people do, but that wasn't me. Okay. I was as naive as they come. And so I, I quit school and, um, I had declared my major as pre-med, by the way, I was going to be a doctor, um, for sure. That was definitely what was going to happen. Um, didn't happen. And, uh, and, and I quit and I, I fell into like a big depression. You know, I just, I felt terrible. Like all my hopes and dreams up to that point felt like they'd been crushed. And, uh, and it was really, really hard. It was really hard to deal with. Um, and my parents had been going through a divorce at the same time. So it was really hard to know where, which house to go to or, or where to stay or, or, um, you know, who I could turn to, to help me cope with this because both of my parents were, were struggling a lot. And so was my brother. So I didn't have a lot of people. And so I, I really went to the only authority I knew, and that would be a, a doctor, you know, to, to say, I don't know, I I'm just crying all the time. I, I, I just want to drink and cry. And I don't know, I don't feel like I have anything left in my life. And I felt terrible. And, you know, it was just one visit for like 15 minutes. And, you know, I got an antidepressant mm -hmm. and it, right, so let's give you a pill. Yep. <laughs> gave me a pill. Um, I'd never been on one before and it, and it was, it kind of, you know, this was in 1999. So this is in the earlier stages, like a lot of the, the currently used major psychotropic medications for mental illness are, are not a lot older than like 30 years, the major ones that are being used. There are some older ones, but for the ones that are used most, there's not a lot of research past that time. Now, these aren't, these aren't drugs that have been out there for a hundred years or anything. Now, these aren't drugs that have been, been on the market for 50, 60 years. These aren't penicillin. So these are, these are, they act on, on neurotransmitters in your brain and um, there isn't any research on like lifelong use of these. And so at that moment, none of that was in my mind. You know, I just wanted relief from what I was feeling. So I started these medications or this one medication and it didn't work. I, I got some, some symptoms I didn't like. So I switched to another one, same thing. So finally they got me onto like a third one after like two months. And uh, I seemed to stabilize and it seemed to be okay. and. Uh, you know, that was the beginning of the journey of, of me feeling like I was going to be going to get the new pill all the time because that was what was working for me. Um, 
And so that was the beginning of, of like the mental health journey that I've been on pretty much from like 18 till now. And it did start with just one prescription from a doctor I just met. It wasn't even a regular doctor. You know, I didn't have one at the time. I was in a town I didn't live in growing up. So it, it was just someone I saw for 15 minutes, barely knew them. They said, here, take this pill. You'll feel better. And I went from there. And so did you, so it took you a while to find the drug that you felt stabilized you, I guess, enough to function mm -hmm. and right. went on to get married, right? And I did. I did. I, I, um, you know, I met my, the, he's my ex-husband. He's a father of my three older sons. Um, I actually met him on the internet when it was just chat rooms and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and I, I feel like when he came into my life, it really made me feel a lot better. Like there was somebody else there. I wasn't alone anymore. And he really kind of saved me in a way mm -hmm. as far as, as from my own self and from my own problems. I, I felt like I had something to distract me and there was someone that cared about me that I cared about. And, and it, it really made my life feel like it was moving in the right direction. And so we did get married. Um, we got married when I was uh, 23. So, um, and three years later, we had our first child. So were you drinking at the time that you married him or had you kind of cut that out and had just had the medication? I had gone from, you know, alcohol wasn't a huge part of my life, but it was something that happened. Um, if it did on the weekends, I would drink. And then once I started having kids, I didn't actually do a lot of drinking except for maybe once a year honestly just during like new years or something i would get really really messed up and then and then the rest of the year would would was pretty much no alcohol but but as time progressed i got onto more and more of these psych psychotropic medications okay. um up to five at one time i was taking five different psych meds along with um at one point i was taking 16 meds all at once and five of them were psych meds Wow. How, what made you feel like you needed more than the one? Like, were you still like, so you were having symptoms still with the one. So you added another for a different, right? Like well, I had, I, my, I was diagnosed with, um, you know, multiple mental illnesses. So, um, I can tell you those I was diagnosed with uh, major depression, anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, ADHD, bipolar two disorder and borderline personality disorder. So now, when you go back to that, like looking back now, and I guess I don't, maybe I should wait till later to ask this, but I just thought about this. Like, I feel like so many people are misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on that now? Cause I feel like they are so quick to just throw a label on. I mean, I've, I've read quite a few of uh, John Roseman's books too. And he's just, yeah. I love, love him. Um, but I, you know, and he definitely has another totally different view than a lot of, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists out there, but I really like what he says and it makes sense to me, you know, but what do you feel like, and I also have family members that I feel like they haven't gotten it right yet, or they've like misdiagnosed and stuff. So, and then just throwing a pill at it. Now, look, I'm not saying for anybody listening and even for you that you didn't need something at the time you more than likely did need something, you know, but I don't know, you know, but if they don't even offer any um, 
you know, just counseling or trying to coping mechanisms or just other alternatives to a pill instead of just throwing it out and just saying, let's get to the, again, root cause. What's causing this because you slap a pill on there, it's going to get to where you were. It's like, okay, now this is helping for a little bit, or this is helping one issue, but you still don't know how to cope when something else comes along. And then, you know, and then, then you can, some of these, a lot of these antidepressants have so many other side effects that can, any medicine does, not just antidepressants. And then they can cause other things and it can mimic mental illness, you know, (laughs) some kind of a mental illness. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. um, I agree with, I, I do agree with what you said that um, I, th- I think there is a place for, for psych meds in mental health treatment. Um, however, I do not believe that a lifelong re- regimen of medication should be recommended. I'm not saying that people aren't going to be doing that and that's not what they need, but I don't think that from the get-go, you should say, okay, now you're going to take this pill for the rest of your life, you'll feel fine. Don't, don't ever question anything you do. Don't ever question your thoughts. This is who you are. Move on. And I think that that is highly detrimental to people's psyches when they over-identify with diagnoses. And what I mean by that is (laughs) I don't know if I necessarily did or did not have all of those diagnoses, or if I still do, I, I believe people can struggle with aspects of a condition, but not necessarily have it. Like I have weird little things I do that you would think would be something that somebody with OCD would do, but I've talked to so many people that do weird stuff all day. Like I've got to touch this with my foot and touch that light switch. Nobody knows what all we do. You know what? They're (laughs) they're called quirks. I don't know. Like, I mean, everybody has their little things, you know, like I'm OCD about that. I'm OCD about that. I mean, and I think people are so quick to just be like, well, this is definitely something that's wrong with me. It needs to be fixed. And I need to, to move on so that I can, I can fit into this like normal box or whatever, you know, and sometimes, the, and I, and I'm not saying that there aren't really severe OCD symptoms where people are spending hours doing something. Right. That is definitely a, a reality. But, but what I mean is, is it wasn't until I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder where I was actually sent to the kind of therapy that I felt was, was very helpful. And that was dialectical behavior therapy. And it, it teaches you to really, you know, uh, there's different skills that it teaches you. Um, it was started by Marshall Lanahan at University of Washington in Seattle. She, um, it, it takes concepts from Buddhism and, and other, and other uh, disciplines, but but basically you train your brain to kind of uh, deal with the stresses that you are creating in your head. So, you know, you would, you would, you would combat that certain things like with distress tolerance skills or emotional regulation skills, or you would learn how to ignore negative thoughts or just let them pass through without giving too much attention. And these are skills that are super, super valuable to people that deal with, um, like intrusive thoughts or, or, mm-hmm. or obsessive things that they do all the time. And, and when you just give somebody a pill and you don't teach them skills, they will, they will never understand or learn that there's ways for them to, to think their way out of things. Exactly. And- Thank you. That's Thank what I was trying you. to get at. Slapping a diagnosis in a pill, it may be temporary, but that's not the answer. 
You know, that's not, you that's have, so amazing. There has to be, in my experience personally, a transformation which requires a willing participant to choose to have their mind transformed with truth. I mean, for me, you know, you mentioned your therapy and that it's got a lot of Buddhist roots and, and I 100% believe exactly what you're saying. And for me, I had more of a, more of a Christian based therapy, which was not what people probably think about. Uh, Cause I struggled with a lot of fear in my life growing up, thought I was going to die at 23, almost died at 23, like crazy stuff. Right. That I was like, this is anyway, that's for another podcast, but the, the kind of therapy that I did was the transformation of the mind, which was believing what's true and deciding I wasn't going to believe things that weren't true or good. I was going to set my mind on the right things. And when you start to learn that you can control your mind, right, that there is that you, you do have authority over your mind. There are things you can control. And again, we're painting in broad strokes. There are people who really struggle with a lot of this, but you have to learn it. Because if you don't, it's exactly what you're saying, which is you stay stuck in a rut and those, that tape player's playing in the head and it's telling you the same stuff over and over. And then you do feel crazy. Then you do feel crazy. And I think that, that it's, it's almost like we have become this culture that thinks everybody should fit in this box of acceptability that you shouldn't have any, if you have a quirk outside the box, then you're weird and need help. I feel like we need to broaden what, you know, to stop yeah. acting like, like we, we can learn, we can learn and we can get the spiritual and mental help we need outside of a pill, but we've become very, we've become a medicated society that doesn't want to do the hard work or either doesn't know to do the work. Say, transformation of the mind is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. I mean, we it work on it work. all the time. All the time. It, 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 Hard. It's so much easier to default to, you know, the easy, you know, the way, the, the way that's not as hard. I mean, it is yeah. tough, even for people who aren't struggling hard, you know, everybody struggles, but transformation of the mind is super hard. So in addition to all the mental, I know you had a lot of physical stuff going on mm -hmm. as well, right? I was getting diagnosed with more and more mental illnesses, it seemed as time went on and, and I identified with them. And what I mean by that is I would make choices in my life based on my diagnoses. Like I would not feel good that day. And I would say, well, that's because I'm depressed. I'm not going to go anywhere. Mm. And so, which I think is a lot of people do that because maybe you don't feel good. You are feeling depressed, but when it comes down to the end of the day, whether you have depression or you take a medication or you go to therapy, you're still going to have to deal with what's in your mind. Like you still have to go on through your day, whatever diagnosis you've got. So unless you plan on identifying with that diagnosis and, and, and making decisions in your life based on that forever, you've got to get to a point where you're like, okay, maybe I do struggle with depression and anxiety, but I'm going to find a way to not let that define who I am. I'm not going to make life choices and, 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 and do all these things because of that. I'm trying to try not to see it as a limitation and maybe learn from this and, and use it forward. But it's really hard to do when you don't have a lot of support. And so when I was raising my, my three oldest boys, um, I had three kids in 38 months. So it was Woo, a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot to deal with. Um, but what was really the troublesome part was that I, I was 
pretty isolated a lot of the time, um, just because a lot of my friends were having babies. And, and after, after we started having babies, we just started getting busy. I wasn't seeing a lot of people and I really just turned to food again. You know, it, it food never really left as, as a coping mechanism, but it, it, it grew larger for sure. Like it, it was a huge part of my life. Um, and television, you know, just like constantly just self-medicating with entertainment and food. And I completely lost the whole movement part of my life, like the exercise movement, being comfortable with my body, all that was, was gone. Now I was just a person that was consuming food and entertainment and, and trying to keep it together to, to raise my three little boys. And it was, it was hard because I kept getting more and more diagnoses because my body was, was just, wasn't being used right. You know, I was just sitting there all day. Mm-hmm. And so when you do that for that long, you start to, you know, obviously you start to gain weight. And so I, <laughs> I started, you know, gaining a lot of weight, you know, it well, was three great. kids in 38 months already. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have yeah. time to recover really yeah. from the previous pregnancy. So that's already just one thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was really hard. I, um, I had three kids in 38 months and then, uh, it was just trying to keep track of all three of them. And, and, um, I didn't have energy anymore at the end of the day because it was all snowballing. You see, I was gaining weight. I didn't have the motivation. All I did was watch TV and then my body hurt. So I didn't want to get up and cook dinner. Right. I didn't want to clean anything because nothing felt good. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't move without pain. And, um, I remember getting so overweight and so degenerated. Um, I had been at this point, I was diagnosed with, um, fibromyalgia, degenerative disc disease. Um, I had, uh, tardive, uh, I, I had, um, a, a dyskinesia that an achesia that comes from taking, um, Abilify. I had gotten that I had, uh, pre-diabetes and, um, severe obesity. I, the problems I had went on and on. Um, I was diagnosed with over 36 conditions total over the 20 yeah. years. And um, I just, I didn't feel like doing anything. I was in so much pain that when I tried to clean the living room, literally I would sit on my bottom and I would scoot around because standing up and bending over was too hard and being on my knees hurt too much. Like I couldn't sit on my knees because they would go numb. My legs would go numb. Wow. And, um, you know, this was the point where, where the quality of life was, was starting to get really poor, like, uh, taking a shower. By the time I got done, I was already sweaty again. I couldn't get dressed without breaking a full sweat and sitting on the edge of my bed just to get my socks on because I couldn't even, I mean, I weighed almost 400 pounds. You um, weighed all, I mean, we're sitting here looking at Katie. We're sitting, yeah. You would never, <laughs> never know. No. <laughs> and just so you guys know, and we'll post her video so you can see. <laughs> looks like the picture of health, right? I know looks can be deceiving, but to imagine her at 400 pounds is, al- is almost unimaginable, Katie. So, so you get to this point where you're overweight, do the, you're, you're medicated for the mental issues. Does the drinking come back in to the, is that, I'm assuming that escalates at some point again. Is that right? Yes, it escalates um, towards the end of my marriage. And then after my divorce, it, it explodes into a nightmare. Um, I'd been trying to lose weight with 
I thought I knew how to lose weight, right? I thought I knew how to be healthier. I had taken nutrition classes. I had taken health classes. I talked to doctors. How could a doctor not know about nutrition, right? Well, it turns out they don't learn a lot about nutrition in medical school. I just thought if I ate less and I moved more, it would be good. And a calorie was a calorie and it didn't matter. My body was like a calculator, right? If I, you know, if I can calculate how many calories I'm putting in, and if it's less than what I'm using, then I will lose weight. And so going that route didn't work. That was a disaster as well. I'd, I'd gone, you know, to, to Weight Watchers and, and different programs multiple times. Um, I finally, I enrolled in the gastro bypass program through my, through my doctor. And I, I'd been in and out of the program for like three years. Cause I was like, I don't want to do this. And I had a relative that done it and she she lost some weight, but she'd had not very good results, like a lot of pain afterward and stuff. And so I thought, well, I'm younger, maybe, maybe I can, it'll work for me. So finally I, I do it. I get the gastro bypass because I think this is the only thing that's going to save me. Right. Like I'm almost 400 pounds. I've all these conditions. I have to wear a CPAP every night. I can't even walk down the, I can't even walk a whole block without stopping because I'm in so much pain and I'm too tired. And um, my doctors, all they would offer me was just like, read this book, like, look at this article, this will help you. And I understand that they didn't have a lot of time. So I'm not blaming them for that. But when you're that deep in reading one article, isn't going to do anything for you probably. And so I had the gastric bypass. Um, and, you know, from the surgery itself, I probably lost about 40 or 50 pounds, which is an okay amount. But when you have to lose 200 or more, it, it wasn't the results I was hoping for. And despite having taken their nutrition classes and going through all of their steps, I still didn't have a good grasp on food control, right? I was still constantly eating for comfort or uh, not eating very much at all, just so I could like gorge a little bit because now my stomach was too tiny to eat anything. And so um, it, it, I, I thought it was going to be this great magic bullet for me. And it turned out to not be much of that at all. And in fact, it, it caused me now I have a uh, chronically low iron all the time. Um, with my last pregnancy with my one-year-old son, I had to have seven iron infusions during my pregnancy. Wow. Um, and, uh, it, and it was really hard to get pregnant too. It, um, we lost two others before because my body wasn't able to produce the right amount of, of nutrients. At least that's my theory because after he was born also, I, I wasn't producing milk much. And in my other three, I was this, I was like a cow, right? Like I was, I could produce gallons it seemed. And then, but since I had this surgery, my body wasn't converting the milk to, or the food to breast milk correctly, no matter how much I ate. And so that was definitely a challenge. Um, in hindsight, having gotten that surgery, knowing that all that was going to happen, you know, I don't think I would have done it, obviously. Um, but that's not how life works, is it? So, uh, so that happened, and and I thought it was going to be this great, great big boon for my health, and 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 it and it wasn't that great at first. Uh, it wasn't really that great at all. Um, <clears throat> but I, I started um, finding that I couldn't use food as much as a drug anymore because. I couldn't eat that much, at least not yet, not right after the surgery, but I could drink, right? And they, they really warn you 
when you go through this process, actually, they warn you specifically about transferring your addiction. Specifically, it's one of the big things they go over, over and over. And I'm like, oh, that'll never be me. I'm not that. I'm not that person. Despite having like a super addictive personality to everything, I'm not that person, you know, complete denial. So um, it just, you know, it started with, with, with drinking wine at home. And then it would be like two bottles a night, you know, just by myself. You know, my, my husband didn't even drink, but I'd just be sitting there drinking. Why not? You know? And so it, it, it just really devo- devolved. The relationship devolved. Um, I was, I was already, I would say a not very aware person as far as aware how I treated others and, and how I acted towards my husband most of the time. You know, I wasn't as loving as a person as I could have been. I was quite selfish a lot of the time when I look back on it. And, and I have a lot of guilt about that, about the way that I, I could have been more loving or more caring. Um, I think a lot of it is I was so wrapped up in my own pain and my own suffering and my, my mental problems and, and everything. I, I wasn't able to, to find the strength to, to see that other people were having pain too. And so can we, can we pause there, Katie, for a second? Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to sit on that for a second because I, everything you're saying is resonating with us and just whether it has been, in, you know, whether we've had some personal experience or someone we love has been in a similar or multiple people we love have been in, in your shoes. When you say how depressed you were, we know all the mental, um, that the mental illnesses you were diagnosed with. I do, and I do believe, and I've said this, and, it, and it's not politically correct to say, and I recognize that, and I don't want it to ever sound insensitive because my heart breaks for people who are struggling with depression. It's crippling. It's a dark, dark place. But there is an element of self-absorption that comes into play with people many times in the midst of their depression. They cannot imagine that anyone else is sad or struggling with their own issues but their depression becomes the center of the universe. Their sadness becomes the center of their universe. And and many times they do, they are being selfish. And again, I know that sounds insensitive. So please hear me out. What I'm saying is there is something that happens sometimes when we are struggling, where our eyes do turn so far in when we're unaware of how everyone around us is feeling. But there's a proverb that says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I've seen many people overcome sadness and depression by beginning to go outward, not kind of getting out of this inward space and starting to push outward and saying, how can I help others? And then they're helping others found their own healing. So if you're one of those people who's struggling, let's just challenge our listeners today. Think about ways that you could externally go and help someone else, maybe in your own shoes. But by doing so, there is something that I think happens in a spiritual way that begins to heal our own souls in that. And so thank you for being so vulnerable to share that there is an element of a self-centeredness that happens sometimes in when we're struggling, that if we can push outside of it, many times we can start to get better. So thank um, you. I want to add a little, just real quick to that too. Yeah. Even if it's not major depression, um, and, and honestly, in, when people are majorly depressed, they can't even wrap their heads around doing anything even for anybody or for themselves a lot of many times. I know because I, I just remember 
in nursing school, that was one of my patients was a lady that was majorly depressed. And it was just, it was a struggle. Like my goal for the entire time that I was there was just to get her outside one time. Okay. You know, these are the things that like when they're majorly depressed, but I want to just point out too, that even people who aren't in a major depression, but if you're on the, just, if you're just stressed, there's a stress scale. I, I was listening to a, tra- a, like a training one time and it was really awesome actually talking about a stress scale where like in the green zone, everything's fine. You kind of let things roll off your back, you know, everything's great. But then once you get into like that orange zone, red zone, that's when things start stressing you out. And like when you're in the red zone, you take every, it's ego takes over. Everything's about you and everything is like, you take everything personally and it's all about you. And so when you can stop and step, and they said that once you start creeping into those, uh, you know, the higher stress scale, then you need to recognize those and learn the coping mechanisms, you know, learn the thought process. How do you switch your mind? And I'll say people, you know, and I've had, I know during, especially during the past two years, there were a couple, there were a couple months that I was not in a good place. Okay. And I do know that the thing that made me feel better is what you said. And if I can just go do something for somebody, if I do something for somebody else, it does, it makes me feel good to be the reason someone else smiles. Even if I'm not smiling, it helped me. And one other thing we learned about that too, is just the, I am whatever follows. I am is what you're going to be. So like your, your cycle of I'm depressed. I am this, I am that. I remember hearing Katie Wood, one of our amazing friends and excellent motiv- motivational speaker. And she, and you know, of course I am is everywhere. People, all people talk about it, but it was, she was like, if you wake up, <laughs> I'm guilty of this. I'm so tired. I'm so stressed. I have, I, you know, I am, I am, am. But if you flip the switch, like I am energetic, I am awake. I am alive. I am breathing, like try to flip and, you know, it's hard and you feel cheesy sometimes, but it's better to be in that cheesy positive cycle than the deep depression cycle. So I'll shut up and let you yeah. keep going, Katie. Well, Sorry. Saying, obviously, you um, <laughs> you have channel you have turned your situation into helping others, which I know you'll talk about later on. But like that's probably been a lot of your healing too. But you can you can keep going with your story. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I was just gonna say that uh, to Holly specifically that. Um, I understand why you gave that whole like preemptive thing about how you're not insulting people about saying that it's selfish. Um, but there is a narcissistic, and I'm going to use that word too. There is a narcissistic aspect to many mental illnesses. Uh, maybe all of them. I don't know, but I know. And, and when you mentioned ego, um, that's a huge one for me. I still struggle with that. In fact, uh, I still find times where I'm like, why am I having such a huge reaction to this? Like, why am I so angry because that person didn't like what I said or, or something like, why is it such a huge deal to me? And I have to, to take a moment because sometimes I don't catch myself. I'm not like this Zen person all the time, you know? And, and, and I'm like, why am I so mad? And it's my ego. So many times it's my ego. It's like so inflated sometimes. Like, like, why is my comment so important? Why do I expect the world to stop spinning because I commented on that guy's post? What is he supposed to do? Say thanks? Like, why am I expecting some party because I made a good comment? You know, and it's it's those kinds of things. And I'll sit there and I'll think about it forever and ruminate over 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 all these things. And, and it's just my ego. Like, just let it go. Like, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's so much. My ego gets involved in so many decisions I make. And, and I realize that it's because... I have these blinders on like a horse in a race and all I see is my perspective and what I want and what's important to me. And, and this is the way I, I was 
back when I was, when I was in so much pain and, and so, so sick inside and unwell, I, I couldn't really see a lot aside from what was right in front of me and my own pain. And I loved my children and, 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 uh, you know, even, even my love for them wasn't obvious sometimes because of the way I acted, you know, I wasn't, especially when I got deeper into addiction, it, it's when you get so far into an illness and, and it becomes who you are and, and, and everything you do starts to justify, you start to justify everything you do to keep up this picture of who you think you are. So is and that so, what, is that how you, what ended your marriage? Do you think like just him not feeling like, cause I know you said really everything started exploding once you I, got divorced. I was really aggressive and I don't mean physically. I was just a really angry person. I had a lot of anger inside. I had a lot of anger from the college thing, not working out. I had a lot of anger from the pain I was in uh, anger from, from feeling like I should have been doing something more with my life aside from, from watching my children. You know, I had all these expectations and I, I made a video about expectations a few weeks ago. And I think it's a lot about what messes people up is their expectations for, for the day. For, for their life for, and I'm not saying everybody lower your expectations and don't expect anything. But what I'm saying is, is when you expect an event to go smoothly, perfectly, and, and you don't, you don't put in account for any hiccups and things that happen with life, you are setting yourself up to be angry or upset all the time. And so um, I, I became a really angry person and aggressive towards him. I would say really mean things. I would, you know, just, just, not a happy or pleasant person to be around. Just, um, just it, things had to be my way. And uh, I was in pain. And if you didn't see I was in pain, then that was your problem. And um, obviously my pain was the most important. And it was, it was that kind of attitude. And it was, um, you know, the, the, just the, the ego getting in the way of thinking like, well, I need people around me that despite having been with this person for like 17 years or something, I need people around me that are supportive is what I would tell myself. Right. That, that are there to, to support me. And this was all ego talking. This was all ego talking. And um, there were other problems. I'm not saying there weren't any problems. Um, neither of us moved much. We both ate terribly. Um, we weren't, we weren't really working on our mental health together. There wasn't a lot of forward motion in our relationship towards, towards a healthy lifestyle or, or supporting each other's goals or, or anything like that. So it was very stagnant overall anyway. And then you add in me being aggressive and, and, and just a nasty person a lot of the time. And it just was a recipe just to end. And so, you know, and, and it wasn't like I had just become nasty. I wasn't, I was kind of, um, egocentric for a long time. And I didn't even know it. You know, I just felt like things were my way and that was the way it was. And everyone else seemed okay with it. And just never, never introspection. And that's probably been the biggest. It's because Katie, we're hearing introspection from you now. And I feel like that's something, again, we want to point out is when you say things like, um, I was angry and, and you didn't even know what you were angry at, but clearly you know now some of the things that you were angry about, yeah. that you knew you had unmet expectations and you realized you needed to, I always believe in high expectations with great flexibility, 
right? Because if you have flexibility to understand that things can work out, even if it's yeah. not the way you plan, that good comes from every bad thing that can happen in life. There can be beauty from ashes always, that that changes your, that helps you become more flexible. But I think the point is to say, and what I feel like, because I know we have so many listeners that I believe your story is going to resonate with in very profound ways, is that now you have clearly changed that. You now are self-aware. You've clearly grown in self-awareness and introspection and getting to the root, not just putting a Band-Aid over the symptom, getting to the root of why you do what you do, why you believe what you believe, why you behave the way you behave. This is where right. all of us want to get to. So what was the impetus to then, because I know, I, I mean, we could talk about this for three hours, but what was the impetus that made you go, okay, I've hit, where was your rock bottom? I, I dealt with a lot of mental illness, even before the gastric bypass, I was going to say, I was even hospitalized for self-harming behaviors. So it was, it was a serious, I had a serious case of, of mental illness going on. It wasn't a, a small, I mean, not that anything small, but it was a lot, a lot at once. And so, um. After my divorce, I, I um, moved out to my own apartment and um, I had met my ex-husband when I was 18. And so at this point, when I've moved out now, I'm 35. So I have almost no dating experience, right? Part of that came with drinking. So everybody wants to meet at a bar, it seems, apparently, these days. It's the only place to meet, I guess, except now it's not. But um, then it was the only place to meet, seemed. Um, and, you know, there's always drinking at bars. And so I would, I started drinking, you know, and it, it would it would be just for dates, but then I would start going on more dates and more dates. And so uh, it became to the point, though, where I was using it all the time. Like I was drinking all the time. I was drinking right after work. I was drinking in the evening. I was drinking. It got to the point where I was drinking in the morning. In fact, it got so bad. Two examples. One example, I would wake up in the middle of the night at like 3 a.m., like shakes, sweating, because I hadn't had enough alcohol that my body was going through such terrible withdrawals that I had to have some soon or I was going to have to go to the hospital or something. And so... I always had to have it with me. And then on lunch break at work, I managed to not bring alcohol to, to work, but I would drive home and have a drink, come back, drive home, listen to that, drive home, have a drink or two drinks, whatever I could get in, in the 30 minute lunch break. Because when I was at work, if I didn't do that, I would shake. And I was at the counter and there were people coming up and it would be my turn to help them. And I would be like, literally shaking. I'd be like, how can I having to try to keep my voice under, I'm sweating, I'm shaking. I'm at, people know something's wrong with me, right? People know, my boss knows I drink too much. You know, I talk to other people about what we're doing on the weekends. They all, everybody knows, but nobody's saying anything. You know, it took, it took probably um, two years to get to the point where I was so bad that I needed it all the time because I was shaking. Because at first it was, it was, uh, it was drinking more for fun with people. And then it became something that I did because I was using it to like medicate myself in addition to all the medications I was still taking. That, that job finally fired me, um, told me I needed to get help with my drinking. And I, I was just upset about that. And so that still wasn't enough to wake me up. I was, still wasn't at rock bottom. So I got fired from a job, still, still 
thinking, well, that's, that's them, you know, they're, they're, they're a bad company and um, which they weren't, they aren't. And um, it was so bad. I was getting pancreatitis acute and I was getting it over and over again. Like I would go to the hospital with terrible, terrible pain. I can't breathe. It's my pancreas. The enzymes are, the, the enzymes are coming back all crazy because my pancreas and liver are all messed up because I'm drinking so much. And now I'm taking medications for so many years. Did your doctors say at the time you're an alcoholic and you need to get help? Yes. The doctor said you need to stop drinking. Um, I even had to go in for emergency potassium drips because my alcohol or my potassium was so low in my body because of the amount of alcohol I was drinking. And now my inability to absorb nutrients because I had that surgery that they were like, if you didn't come in, like right now, we were going to have to hospitalize you because it was so low. So I had to go sit there for three hours while they dripped in a bunch of potassium so I could go back to drinking again. And, um, it was just, it, you know, it was, it was bad. It was just, it was uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of, you know, living in crappy apartments with, uh, party neighbors and, and, and not, not taking care of my, my kids. Well, not taking care of myself. That was my question. Your kids, what, what was going on with your kids at this point? Did you, they're still with me, but they're almost taken away from me. Um, my ex-husband apparently was in the process of, of, uh, or thinking about getting them taking full custody of them because we had shared split custody. And uh, uh, evidently a bunch of friends and people he knew were saying, you need to take the kids because she's not safe. And he was right, probably. You know, I, I wasn't safe, but he didn't take them from me. Um, and they did, you know, they they ran around the apartments and played with friends. And, and luckily nothing ever happened to them. You know, thank God, because I sometimes I was all there and sometimes I wasn't. Depends on how much I drank in right then, you know, and if it was a work day or not. And um, I wasn't responsible. You know, I was also smoking like three packs, two, three packs a day of cigarettes just constantly. And so, and I also don't have a job. So every money I'm getting is going to alcohol, cigarettes. And honestly, at that time, whatever other drug I could find, like I was, I would do any, almost any drug I could find. And so, um, it, it gotten to the point where I was using anything I could to numb my, my brain out. Like I would find people on the internet, whatever drug they had, I would take. Um, <clears throat> And so uh, it, I was becoming really out of control, right? And, and, and dating, internet dating, dating people had become more about the drugs and the alcohol. You know, it wasn't even really about the guy. I didn't even care. That sounds terrible, but it was more about this addiction I had and whatever I had to do to get to that drug, I would do. And so it got really, really dark because just think of all the things you could do to get drugs. I did them. So it was really, really hard. To, to know that, that this is where, who I was now. Like I was this person that was willing to, to pretty much sell myself for, for money or for drugs so that for alcohol, so that I could cope for the rest of the day till tomorrow. till I was going to figure out some new plan to get more alcohol. And it, 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 it was really a hell. It was a, a hell realm to live in at the time. And, um, I finally, after I got fired from that job, I got another job. Somehow I got a job paying me even more. I, I don't know how I did it. I guess I bullshitted my way through it or something, the interview. And they hired me as an accounts payable person. Yes, I'm working with money and numbers. Who knows how that's going to work when I'm drinking all the time. And so, um, and to this job, I'm coming shaky and having all these problems and stuff. So 
uh, I'm making all these account errors. Accounts are coming back messed up for this like hotel chain. And so they're like, well, we can't have you working here because our accounts are all messed up. And so I was really depressed. So I went home that day. I was really sad about it. They were like, we're going to have to fire you if you don't clean up your act. So what do I do? I, I go buy a giant bottle of vodka and I start drinking at like 11 a.m. And it's like 6 p.m. or something in the middle of the summer. It's like August. And I'm like, well, I've been drinking for six or seven hours. I might as well go to my friend's house now because I guess that's what you do when you don't care anymore. So, you know, I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even really think. That's the, that's the sad thing is that I didn't think at all. I just did. I got in my car and I drove to my friend's house or I tried to drive there and I wrecked my car in a ditch on the side of the road. Um, and I'm lucky, so fortunate to be alive and that I didn't injure anybody or any property. I don't know how that happened because there were people on the road and it was a one way, each way road in the country. Um, and so apparently the police said they had been getting calls about an erratic driver. And that was me, which I didn't know I was erratic, but apparently I was, I was too drunk to know. Um, <clears throat> my is that where you went to jail? Like, is that where you had your, your, you criminal. went to criminal record or that's where I got the criminal record. Yes. So I got, I wrecked my car. It was totaled. I, um, the police came to arrest me. And I think I'm all clever. So I, I refuse the breathalyzer because I'm like, oh, I've seen all those crime shows, right? You got to refuse it or they'll, because obviously, obviously I'm not completely drunk, right? Can't you tell I'm not drunk at all? Even though I was terribly, yeah, terribly Like toxic. every drunk person who's ever been pulled over, right? Like right, you're, exactly. You're, yeah. So then they take me to the station and he asks me again if I want to take the breathalyzer. And I'm like, and this is like an hour later now, right? An hour after having me booked and all this stuff. And he's like, will you take the breath? I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Cause I don't want to, he's like, or you'll maybe you can't drive for years. And I'm like, Oh God, that's terrible. Even in my drunk brain, I was like, well, that's not good. So I take it. And over an hour after the accident, my, my blood alcohol level still 0.254. Oh my gosh. Crazy. And the, the Oregon legal limits 0.08. And so over an hour later, I'm still over triple the legal limit. Um, and he, you know, the police, I said, well, I have a friend that lives near here. So they said they would just drop me off at the friend's house. And so it was a friend that was also suffering with some addiction problems. And when I got there, I drank again, right? Like I didn't learn anything, right? Like I got the wreck, went straight to a friend's house. And this is how in denial and just how twisted I was in my brain. So right? what was the moment that woke you up? Yeah. Like to start your transformation into who you are now? The moment, the moment that woke me up is when I would say when I met my husband now. Um, and you met him I, while you're still in the throes of addiction. And yes, I hadn't, I hadn't yet started treatment. Um, I'd already gone through, I, I had forgot to mention earlier, I'd already gone through a um, drug and alcohol treatment program because I had become severely addicted to opioid medications um, after I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, so that was used to treat the pain. We all, that's, that all, that's, was, a, that's an episode for another day, but opioid addiction. Yeah, that was in 2012. And um, I was taking 20 Percocet and 10 morphine a day and uh, for about a, year, a couple of years. And um, it was terrible. It was, it was so bad. The addiction was bad. And I, there was getting them, I was getting them prescribed to me, but I would take them all in two weeks. And then I would go through two weeks of withdrawals. 
Oh my gosh. Two weeks of, of feeling like I wanted to feel and then two weeks of withdrawals. And it was, it was horrible. The, 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 the sweating, the body aches of withdrawals from, from opioids is. And so I think what a lot of people are going to want to know is how you could go from that to where you are now. Like what, like that is major. You know what I mean? To be is, is I, I decided to go on one more internet date. So I thought, well, I'll go on one more. Um, this guy seems kind of weird though. I thought he wants to meet in the afternoon <laughs> at a park at a, for tea and then go on a walk in the park. And I'm like, Ugh. my first thought was Ugh. like every other guy always wants to meet at a bar or go for dinner or do some night nightlife thing. And I thought, well, maybe He's that's my a walk in the park with a serial killer. With a walk in the park. I thought, you know, something in my brain was like, well, maybe, maybe you, what you think you need isn't what you need. Mm-hmm. You should try something new. So I met this guy and I thought this is going to be weird, right? Like not, not drinking with somebody when I first meet them was weird for me. Right. That was all I was doing. Right. And so um, we had tea and we went on a walk and, you know, I didn't smoke a single cigarette for like five hours, which was insane. Cause I didn't want him to know I smoked. So I hit it. I hit it uh, that whole first day, pretty much. And then he was like, you smoke? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, no, that's going to, that's not good. And so, you know, after a couple of weeks, he was like, you're still smoking? And I would be like, I started, because I kept seeing this guy. I was like, well, this, this guy's different. Like, he's questioning my habits. Like, most people would just smoke along with me or drink with me or whatever. But this guy was like, why are you, you know how bad that is for you, right? Like, like he seemed to have a, a level of care that nobody else did. And so we started dating more and more and, and I stopped smoking pretty much right away. And it turns out I, the thing with smoking for me was more, it was, I wanted to stay busy all the time. Like I wanted to smoke while I was looking at my phone. I wanted to smoke in the car. I wanted to smoke while I ate. I wanted to smoke all the time because in my mind, I was so unsettled. Like I couldn't, I couldn't you're take it. Medi- you're, you're still medicating. I mean, I think the point is you are still medicating and right. you tried everything under the sun to medicate and nothing has healed your soul. Literally, nothing healed your soul. So all the physical, the drugs, the tobacco, the alcohol, the food, you are in worse, you're in worse condition than you've ever been, but you've got this new guy who continues to see you even when you are in that state. Right. I find out that Shortly after meeting him, I find out he was like a health and wellness coach for 12 years. And so, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't really know what that is, but, but he did that for 12 years and he dealt with people with addiction too. And so I'm like, oh no. So he, he sees me definitely like actually sees me. Like he knows I've got some serious problems and that those need help if he and I are ever going to see each other any longer. And so I have to enter treatment soon anyways, as part of my court ordered um, different states have different laws. So in Washington, they're very hard on DUIs. So this was my first arrest of any kind ever. I got five years probation. I got um, a full, I got, was supposed to go for a full year of treatment. And I had to have a full year of an interlock device on my car, which is one of those things where you have to blow into it to get it to start. Um, and so um, what happened is, is I, I, my money situation was bad. Nothing was, was going well in my life. And so, you know, I, 
I kept, I kept dating this guy and I ended up moving in with him a little sooner than I would have, but I didn't have a lot going on for as far as places to live and stuff. And so I'm, we, we moved in together and, and I started, I just, everything he told me was true, right? Like I stopped smoking cigarettes and after like a few days, I didn't want them anymore. And I, and I felt better about myself. Like I felt better that, that I wasn't constantly smoking and, and using all this money. And, and it was just terrible for my body. And my kids hated it, especially my middle son. He was always like, mom, stop smoking, stop smoking. That's gross. And I would just still do it. And so I think it, it really came to, I really started to realize that I wasn't treating my body the way it wanted to be treated when I started eating better. And so I, I cut out gluten and it turns out that I, I have, I used to have a bunch of these little like bumps on my arms and on my legs. And I didn't know what those were from, but when I stopped eating gluten after like a week or two, they fell off or they were gone. And so I was like, Oh, I have like, and then I stopped eating dairy, which I still eat sometimes now, but I don't consume mass quantities like I used to. And I don't get much acne anymore. Like I used to just have constant face acne and I was, so was it your boyfriend that like, did, did he eat well? And he was yes. the influence that started getting you to eat well. Okay. Yes. He, he doesn't really consume much dairy or wheat really. And so we focused, you know, a whole new way of, of eating is, is just cook. I use a lot of vegetables and, and meats and eggs and, and things like that. And on, in my food and grains. And, um, I started eating like really clean. And what I mean by that is I tried to reduce the amount of processed foods I was taking in. And, um, just as an example of the way I used to eat as the way I would eat now, I, um, I would used to eat like one of those big giant, like Costco muffins, right. You know, those big giant, like blueberry ones that are huge. Well, I was curious because I would eat that. And then, you know, a little bit later I'd be hungry again. So I'd have another one. Why not? Mm -hmm. Well, I looked those up and there's 600 calories, half of which is carbs, half is fat. I could have three eggs, two pieces of bacon and a piece of gluten-free toast for less calories, four times as much protein and feel better. And you're full and longer. And so it was this, it was the, I guess you call it experiential evidence of doing it and then seeing it work in my life that I was like, this is real. Like, this isn't just some lip service, like actually eating protein and, and cutting out these ultra refined foods is, is actually helping me. And so well, and you were feeling better physically, which made you feel better mentally. Cause you felt like you were doing something good for yourself. And right. you, you had a win. You were feeling like you were getting wins. I feel like right. and I got another job. So after, after I moved in with Paul, I, I got a job at a grocery store, a local chain where I live. And I worked as a housekeeper. And at first I thought this will be terrible. Who wants to be a housekeeper? But actually it was the best job in the store. Cause all I did was walk the whole day. I walked 20,000 steps a day, cleaning that entire grocery store, cleaned all three bathrooms. And I lost, I mean, I lost like, like, 20 pounds the first month or something that we, I was doing this just and because I cut out all of the crap and I was just putting in high quality proteins, some select carbohydrates, 
And a lot did of that change your fibromyalgia. Did that because I you had mentioned earlier how you couldn't clean your house, you had to scoot on your bottom, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so changing your diet, you did feel better, but are you noticing a decrease in pain as well? And then with the alcohol, the opioids, what was going on at that point with those? So what was going on at that point is now I'm in I'm in uh, drug and alcohol treatment and I have to take random UAs. Okay. So I literally have to call a phone number every day and find out if it's my random day or not. I did that for nine months straight calling this number. I was so happy when I didn't have to do that again, by the way. Um, but um, so I'm being tested for everything because they only allow, they allow cigarettes, but I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. So um, I never failed a UA in the full nine months I was there. Um, and they let me out not three months early. I was supposed to go for 12 months, but because they said that I was progressing so well, thankfully it was only nine. Most people only had to go for three or four. Um, but you know, I'm glad I had to do that long extended because it, it forced me to look at myself. It like forced me to see like, okay, well now I'm in this class. Why am I here? Well, what have you been doing with your life lately? You know, what can you do differently? And so it, it, it really, you know, I, I, I upped my fitness level. I increased or I improved my diet and my mobility improved. I was able to move and bend. And I, you know, I ended up losing like a hundred pounds. And mm. so I, I feel so much better. I rarely notice symptoms from the fibromyalgia anymore. Honestly, I almost never notice symptoms. Once in a while I have like a weird pain and in certain spots that I've been told are fibromyalgia spots, but I try not to like identify with I just move on. I'm not like, oh no, it's a fibromyalgia. I just think that's kind of painful. I'm gonna move on. I'm not gonna sit here and like dwell on it. Because if you do, well, it actually tells your brain to feel more of that pain. And I, I know from a sickness that I had, um, I started planting a garden and, some, and somehow I could distract my brain by digging in dirt. And it sounds crazy, but that activity, which when I felt miserable and my quality of life was bad, I could turn it off. And then that allowed me to then be able to shut down almost the pain. And then guess what? I started to recover, started to get better and I don't yeah. have it anymore. But I, I did, there's something about the brain focusing on pain that actually amplifies it. Well, so I want to add like a few more things uh, before we go is um, how this new, like these lifestyle changes affected your mental health and all the mental drugs you were on. Because I know there is a tie with like gluten and anxiety and depression. I mean, it can affect people in those ways um, mentally. And then also how you started all the, I want you to talk about all the things you've done with your new, you know, everything that you've transformed and what you're doing now to help other okay. people. One of the things I found when I started eating better is that the gluten and all the processed foods were co severely contributing to inflammation. Like I was in so much pain with all of this extra just process things I was eating. Now I don't feel that anymore. I still have some pain in my back because of that degeneration that I cannot replace because I was overweight for so long. Um, I, I do have a, a bit of a bulgy disc, but um, yes, as far as foods influence on mental health, in my opinion, it's huge. And I believe that there's research to back that up. Um, if you are going to be feeding yourself something that's going to give you a fast, a fast reaction, like sugar, you're going to crash. Your mental health is not going to be there for you in another hour. Like you're going to be feeling like you're wanting, like you're hungry, you're needing. And so when I started treating using um, 
you know, as cliche as it sounds, using food as medicine, just using it like, am I hungry? You know, am, am I, am I hungry? Am I actually feeling hungry right now? Or do I want something else? Am I feeling bored? Do I need stimulation? Am I feeling sad about something? Like actually taking a moment to, to kind of look at my life from above and see what's going on has been the most helpful piece of all of it. Being able to take a step back and look at myself as if I'm an observer is the most helpful thing I've been able to do. Um, because it, it, you could do that on your own and you don't need somebody else to help you, you know, and that's the hardest, that's, that's the, the hardest thing to learn is you can do it when you're alone too. And so um, that's a huge thing. And then what was the second part? Oh, how I've started this stuff now. Yeah. Like all the things you're doing now, cause you're doing a lot and yeah. like the, the, yeah. the Facebook group and the coaching. I just want to hear about yeah, definitely. all this, all this hot mess, hot train wreck stuff into good, <laughs> into good. Yeah. So I, so I, you know, the, the working on mental health is a daily habit. Um, it's something I still have. I still do. I still, I still catch myself with bad habits and things. And so I started thinking like, in order to keep myself on the up and up, like what Holly and Kristen were saying earlier, I have to be able to give back. And that's a huge piece of any sort of like recovery program or 12 step program is you have to do acts of service. And so, um, in my own life, it keeps me accountable. And now I've found a way to keep me accountable, but also to help sustain myself like financially. So, um, as a, as a, a personal trainer and a wellness coach, I, you know, I, I coach people, I take a look at their whole life and they, they fill out paperwork. I ask them questions about what's going on in your life. You know, what, what are you eating? How are you moving? And we look and we see where there needs to be improvement. And sometimes it's, it's even habits that they have during the day, like watching too much TV or they like to sit and play video games too long or, or things where they can add in other things in, into those, into the, the things they enjoy doing, they can make them more versatile, versatile and more active. Um, as far as starting the groups, I, I do have the Alpha Females Northwest group on Facebook. And, you know, starting that was, was really, you know, I started it during this whole pandemic, but it's been, it's been like, it's been a good way to find other women that are looking to, to strengthen what they have, even if they don't need or think that they need a lot of help necessarily to know that there's other women out there that have similar issues that you do or can understand what you're saying or that want to have friendly competition, that want to share food with you and their recipes, that want to just be a group of people together is, is huge because community is so often overlooked. And the last two years, community has been what's missing from, from everywhere. And, and I, I think it's literally killing people, oh, like yeah. not having the community and the love around. And so um, I started that group and I have a website. It's katiehinkywellness.com. And um, on there, there's services I offer. Um, I'm going to be offering some group classes probably this summer. Like in my backyard, I have kind of a big backyard, so that'll be good. Um, and then uh, just there's some testimonials on there from past clients I've had and their experiences. And I think that doing this kind of work keeps me, it, it forces me to look at what I'm doing because I don't want to be trying to help somebody with their challenges 
and then trying to like fix my own challenges at the same time. Like I, if I see that, that they, that they need help working in, in an area of food and I have that experience, then I will know what to say to them. But at the same time, sometimes I have a client that's struggling with something that I can, I can learn from, you know, I can learn from, from their mistakes. And then I, I learn what to do with the next client, or I learn how I can use what they've told me in my own life. And I think that that's huge. That, that really gives me a a purpose. And um, it really gives me um, a, a feeling like what I'm doing is, is actually helping people. And it's keeping me from, from falling back into the bad habits because I think if you don't stay on top of that stuff, it's not like you've never, ever escaped it, you know, it could still come back and get you. Right. It's a daily, it's a daily choice choice to work, to keep what you have for all of us, not just you, but it is a daily choice to, you know, to keep this moving forward and to keep your mindset. Right. And so you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. And it's a win. It's a win for you. It's a win for them because it's helping you. It's helping them. And I also feel like for someone who joins a class or joins somebody like you or, or has you as their wellness coach, I think even knowing that you've been through right. what they've been through, there's even more of a level of respect. Right. And when you have that vulnerability, because it's a lot easier for it to be coming from somebody who's been through it. I mean, you've been oh, through yeah. the ringer and come yep. out of it than to have somebody who just went to school and got trained on it. And I'm right. not giving any crap to anybody out there who just did that or a wellness coach who's a perfect Instagram model right like has right. a perfect life right you know like <laughs> so it's just you know people like real people real like people real, yeah. real experiences and so I think that's you have a lot you bring a lot of value in that way too you know well and again I think it's important to, to point out here Katie's been able to help you know other people through what she has endured and what she's overcome and it didn't require her to get licensed and everything under the sun to do it. That doesn't mean that, you know, obviously now she can, she has whatever it, and, and again, like Kristen said, we're not knocking anyone who went to college at 18 and pursued that. It is to say, you all have a story. Every listener on air has a story of something you've had to overcome because you're listening to this right now. You can help someone that's going through that now. Don't ever think that you're underqualified to make a difference. It, you're not. You're not. We all can make a difference. And I truly believe that God brings the people into our paths that we're meant to touch. And it's an opportunity. It doesn't mean we always take it, but we always have an opportunity to help people through something we've already gotten through ourselves. And, and Katie, you've done such a great job of demonstrating. I, I don't know if there's anything you didn't overcome at this point when we're looking at addiction. I mean, you you ran the gamut. And I think, again, it's a reminder. We can all try to fill ourselves with things, some of which are socially acceptable, some of which are not, some of which are illegal. We can <laughs> try to fill our souls with things or people or experiences. And at the end of the day, wherever we go, there we are. That at, at, at some point in life, we have to come to the understanding that, that we're trying to heal us with the wrong stuff. And the work it, is never done. The work is never done. Like yeah. it's never like, oh, I, I made it. Done. I did it, and now I'm good. Like I love what you said about about um, taking your experience to help others, and um, that reminds me that so many times in our lives, we overlook a word from somebody or the experience 
engage with somebody because they don't have, like you said, the degree, the certificate, the thing that they need. And it's, it's a form of like an ad hominem tech. So it's, this person doesn't have the credentials I am required to believe them. So everything they say isn't, isn't worthy. And I do, I have not found that to be the case in my life. In fact, I feel like I'm the poster child for the opposite. Like I've gone to every doctor, every specialist, it seems under the sun. And I'm sure they were highly educated, well-intended people, but it doesn't mean that they can help you. So it, it, sometimes it takes somebody putting it into the words that make sense to you or someone with the experience that you've had. But the one thing I did that helped me the most was finding a wellness coach that had been through some of the stuff I'd been through and then being able to look at my life from above and see what was going on as an observer. So love that guide with that. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, and I'll, we'll just finish with this, you know, um, Chris and Amy and I started this podcast with no qualifications to be, um, having political conversations or health conversations and, um, or current event conversation. We're not journalists. What did we have? We had experience. We saw some things, we noticed some things and we knew that we weren't alone that there was an audience out there that was having some of the same questions and, and had some of the same thoughts and wanted the same answers. And here we now have a, a you know, growing following uh, again around the globe that's su probably surprised all three of us. And yet we weren't credentialed for this, right? So um, everybody, you don't have to have a podcast. You don't have to, to be a health coach like Katie to make a difference. You make a difference by when you have the opportunity to say something, share something, be vulnerable, be honest, you do it. You have no idea the difference you can make in another person's life. So with that, Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story. And we'll point everybody back to you and to your resources so they can connect with you. But we thank you so much for sharing your story and most importantly, sharing how you overcome some pretty insurmountable issues. Thank you so Amazing. much. Amazing. What a story. So inspiring. And stay tuned. We'll post your video and all of your information too. So thank all right. you. Thank you ladies so much. Thank